0: Amen. Well, big day today. You know, this is that day once a year where millions, maybe even a billion or more people all across the world will gather together in their living rooms, maybe pop some popcorn, make some snacks, uh, uh, have uh, Cokes. We'll, we'll just keep it as a Christian gathering, Cokes, uh, and, uh, and the like, and, and uh, just be riveted to the TV for four hours. I'm talking, of course, about the Taylor Swift show. Um, There's also a football game today that you may have also uh, heard about. Uh, One thing's for sure, after the Super Bowl today, the only person who will ever be heard saying, who is Taylor Swift, will be a Jeopardy contestant. But uh, speaking of football, I was thinking about the oddity of this game we call here in America football. Uh, In the game of football, there's no game without the ball. I can remember as a kid uh, wanting to get a a bona fide NFL football when I finally got one. I don't remember if it was birthday or Christmas or what it was. The thing was so big, I couldn't even get my hands around it. So it just sat on my shelf forever. But uh, there's no game without the ball. Players can, can put on the gear, wear the helmets, walk in their cleats, but there's no game without the ball. All the drama, the excitement, game plans, the hype, the uniforms, the predictions, nothing really matters in football if you don't have a ball. When you think about it, that little piece of pigskin controls a lot. A touchdown is only a touchdown based on where the ball is. A first down is only a first down measured by where the ball is. A lineman is onside or offside in relationship to the ball. Whether it's a catch or an incomplete pass uh, depends on control of the ball. Just ask Des Bryant from a few years ago. It just changed the whole game because of that bad call in that Green Bay game. But I'm, I'm not bitter or anything. <laughs> Everything has to do with the ball. I mean, the Patriots figured this out. That's the reason they got a hold of the balls several hours before the game and manipulated them. But anyway, the ball is the key. Three points or a lack of three points. It has to do with where the ball went. Two points, six points, even one point. All eyes are on the ball. It's amazing when you think about it. You can have all the other stuff, but if there's no football, you've wasted your Sunday afternoon. Well, as I was thinking about that simple, profound realization, it occurs to me that in life, it's possible to have a lot of stuff right, do a lot of things right, go to the right church, have basically everything together, and even as a Christian, you can have all the accessories, all the other stuff related to Christianity correct, but yet still miss the main thing, which is God's Word. If you don't have God's Word as the central guiding factor in your life, everything else is a waste of time. You can't play football without a football. And you cannot follow God without God's Word. You cannot be an effective Christian without the centrality of the Bible in your life. As we come to the next verse in our text this morning, we see a group of young believers who were excited not about all of the peripherals in their new place in the way, as they called it in the early days of Christianity. No, they were excited about the Word of God. They were excited about the Bible as the apostles, uh, Paul and uh, Silas and Timothy, as they preached the Word of God with authority, these young believers got excited. And so to help us recalibrate our lives around the centrality of the Bible, I want to examine the amazing life-changing power of this book. This book is unlike any other book on the planet. Even unbelievers, even famous unbelievers. Like Gandhi, who was not a Christian, at least as far as we know of anything he ever said or wrote. He never professed faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died and rose again for his personal sins. But even he understood the power of God's Word. Gandhi said, you Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all civilization to pieces, to turn the world upside down and bring peace to a battle-torn planet. But you treat it as though it is nothing more than a piece of literature. What an indictment on the average Christian today. So as we're going to just look at one verse this morning and talk about the life-changing power of the Word of God, the next verse in our text is 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, if you want to turn there. But to contextualize it a bit, remember, it's the second missionary journey. Uh, It's the summer of 51 AD. Paul is camped out in Corinth, he had visited Thessalonica a few months earlier, shared the gospel. There was a great harvest of souls. People were born again by faith. And, uh, and they immediately began to grow. And, and Paul frequently in this letter that he writes back to them a few months later from Corinth, he brags about what uh, how encouraged he is by their growth in the faith. So let's take a look at verse 13. Uh, and it, and it, let me just read the verse and then we'll break it apart. He says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Now, we talked about this verse a few weeks ago when we were in chapter 1 of First Thessalonians. And I pointed out that in the Greek New Testament, there are two words, two different words that are often translated receive, decamai and lambano. And most of the time, they're both translated receive in our English Bibles, and you don't really know unless you have a good word study book or a digital software where you can hover your finger over the word in English and see what the original Greek word was. You don't really know the difference, but it's critical to understand the difference because the word lambano simply means to receive, to take possession of. If someone hands me this bottle of water and I take it, and now it's in my possession, that's lambano. I've received it, right? It says nothing about the attitude or a commitment, anything like that. And that's the word that's used first here that you see highlighted in red. When you heard the word of God from us, you received it. They got saved. Uh, John 1:12 uses lambano. It says, to as many as received him, which it defines as to those who believe in his name, He gives the power to become the children of God. So the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for your sins, in that instant, you have received the free gift of eternal life. In fact, faith alone is the means by which we receive that gift. In the same way that to take this bottle of water, I would use my hands, a physical gift, the spiritual gift of forgiveness and eternal life comes only by faith. And, and we've talked about that a lot in here, about the centrality of the gospel and getting the gospel right and how so many people make salvation about a two-way contract. You've got to commit, surrender, pledge, promise, forsake, do all these things. That's not it at all. It's simply taking possession, which you do by faith. So that's Lombano. But as we read on in here, after they had received the word, they'd been saved, it says, you welcomed it. Not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. That's the word decamai. Now, in this verse, in the New King James, it translates it welcomed, which is the best translation of decamai. Again, often it's translated just received, and you don't really understand the meaning. But decamai has to do with your attitude. It's more of embracing, getting excited about, enthusiastic about. And that's what they did, uh, having gotten saved. When the Thessalonians heard Paul preach the word of God, they realized it was not simply the words of man's wisdom, but a message that had its source in God. He goes on to say, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. They began to realize, wow, the same God who proclaims the good news of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, that same God has a lot of other promises in this word that we can live by and grow by. Paul's message was powerful precisely because it was The Word of God. He was an apostle. This was during the apostolic age, the revelatory age, when God was still revealing much of the New Testament through these apostles. But Paul preached the Old Testament. He preached uh, some of his early writings and some of the Gospels that had already been written. He was preaching the Word of God. And it was powerful. In fact, he mentions at the outset of this letter, we looked at this a few weeks ago, just how powerful it was. He said, our Gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God both to convict the lost of their need for a Savior, but also the saved of their need to grow up in spiritual maturity. Remember, Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That means that faith for those who are lost and needs to be saved comes by hearing the Word of God, and they believe it and they're saved, but faith for those who are already saved to grow up into spiritual maturity also comes by hearing the Word of God, the Word of God is central. Going back to the text, he says, it is in truth the word of God. Now, it's really interesting here. Another thing that you don't really see come across as well in the English translation is the connection between from us. They heard, excuse me, they heard the message from Paul and Silas and Timothy and others. The connection between that phrase from us and the phrase Of God, that you see highlighted at the end of what's in red there on the screen. Um, Paul wanted to make sure, under the inspiration of the Spirit here, as we're going to talk about, that his readers had no confusion about the nature of the message he was giving. It might have been coming from him as a conduit, but it, without question, was the message of God. And in Greek, even though here in English you see, which you heard from us, and then several words later it talks about of God. In Greek, the phrase from us and of God are immediately after each other. It goes from us and then to the, of God, right after each other. So it's emphatic for emphasis. The idea is that although brought by human messengers, in reality it was God's message, God's word. And, you know, theologians who study the unique nature of the Bible, the authoritative word of God, if they believe in inerrancy, which sadly most don't anymore since the rise of higher criticism, But you'll see in the writings about bibliology, the study of God's Word, you'll see referenced when speaking about the human authors. Remember, the Bible was written by 40 different human authors over a period of 1,500 years in three different languages from three different continents. But God was the one, through the Holy Spirit, superintending over all of it. And so you'll see often the reference to the human author written this way. It'll it'll say capital A slash little a. U-T-H-O-R, author, but the first letter is both capitalized and a small letter. And that's a way of indicating that, look, Paul may have been the author if they're talking about one of Paul's letters, but God's the ultimate author. So it's a capital A author in conjunction with a little a author because it is the Word of God. God's message, God's Word brings change when we welcome and embrace it, that idea of decamai. And that's what the verse goes on to say. It effectively works in you who believe. Uh, Paul credited the changes in the Thessalonians to the spoken and written Word of God. Not only had it affected changes in them in the past when they heard the gospel and believed it unto eternal salvation, but it was continuing to change them as they continued to hear it and live by it. The Word of God, like a, a good medicine, will continue to strengthen our faith as we read it and hide it in our hearts. The Thessalonian Christians sensed the supernatural truthfulness of the gospel that Paul preached as the Holy Spirit brought conviction. Remember, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, John 16 in the upper room. So when we share our faith with the lost, we're not merely giving a particular viewpoint on life, as if it were one among an endless variety of human theories. We are announcing the divinely revealed truth of God, the Word of God. The Word of God has inherent power to change. The Word of God, through the Old Testament prophets, we see time and again, was recognized as being powerful and authoritative. The Word of God has creative power behind it. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. God spoke and it was done. God spoke the world into existence. John tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God's Word is powerful. So what I want to do this morning with that foundation from 1 Thessalonians 2.13 is talk about four reasons that God's Word changes lives. Four reasons that God's Word changes lives. But first, what do we mean by God's Word? You know, we in the Christian circles that grow up in conservative churches, that believe in the authority of God's Word as the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices, we use Bible and God's Word synonymously, as we should. 3,800 times, that's a lot of times, the Bible says, thus saith the Lord. It really is the Word of God. I remember speaking one time uh, for a software company uh, at a large conference, and um uh, when I was done, I had talked about the Word of God this and the Word of God that. I was promoting Logos Bible software uh, to these Christian uh, conferences. And uh, one of the executives for the company happened to be at that particular conference because it was in uh, the Seattle-Tacoma area, and Logos is based not far from there in the north of Seattle. So they pulled me aside and said, you know, hey, be careful about using the phrase Word of God because a lot of people at these conferences are liberals and they don't like that phrase Word of God. Of course, I ignored him and For the next nine and a half years, I just spoke from the heart like I try to always do. But that's the perspective that a lot of people have. So I want to start by just reviewing how we got our Bible. And this is one of the charts that's in my chart book uh, out on the table in the lobby. Or if you're watching online, you can get it from notbyworks.org on our store. But it started with truth in God's mind. So you look at human history where 6,000 years ago, God spoke the world into existence. We don't have time to make the case for the young earth, but it's pretty clear when you look at the science and the Bible that science is a Christian's best friend. Actually, what the Bible says is true. There's a shocker for you. But anyway, God spoke the world into existence, and then about 2,400 years later, he decided it was time to reveal his plan of the ages, including the creation story, through the written word. And he did that during the wilderness wanderings with Moses. Uh, in the 1440s BC. And so the truth that had been in God, the eternal creator's mind, became truth in the human author's minds. And this is the process of revelation. Revelation means unveiling. Uh, God unveiled this truth that was in his mind and placed it in the mind of these human authors. And then the Holy Spirit inspired them to write the original manuscripts, what we call the autographs, the original 66 books of the Bible, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. And that's the doctrine of inspiration. And then over time, uh, you know, they didn't have a digital technology. They didn't have printing presses. They didn't have Xerox machines. Uh, those original manuscripts got copied by scribes and spread around, but it was a long process. And eventually, the early church discovered these 66 divinely inspired books. People misunderstand what canonicity is all the time. It's it's a frequent question that I get is, you know, isn't it true, Dr. Hickson, that it was the early church fathers that declared what the Bible is, and people don't agree on that, and the Catholics think this, and the other people think this, and how do we know this is really the Bible? Well, that's not true. The, The early church did not declare what the inspired books are. They did not decide what the inspired books are. God decided. God is the author. He decided what was inspired. The church just discovered them. In the same way you might be panning for gold in a creek bed, you don't get to pull up a piece of pyrite and say, Look, I found some gold. I declare it to be. No, no. It's either gold or it isn't. And these books were either inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, or they weren't. And the church, over a period of years, discovered them. And then and, and for the last nearly 1,500 years or so, we've had uh, the clear internal and external evidence that these are the books uh, of the Bible, these 66 books. So it was the process of discovering what God had already inspired. And then, uh, you know, the doctrine of preservation leads us to study these ancient manuscripts. I'm going to talk more about that in a moment, but we have thousands of manuscript fragments of God's Word from the New Testament Alone, And with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, we have, you know, tons of Old Testament manuscripts as well, dating back, you know, uh, several hundred years before Christ. Um, and so we've got all these ancient manuscripts, which God preserved, um, miraculously, by the way. And then we use translation techniques to create uh, modern English versions or whatever other, uh, other versions and translations exist out there in other languages. And then the Holy Spirit helps us through the doctrines of illumination and interpretation to study the Bible in our own language so that it becomes truth in our minds. So do you see how that works? The Almighty Creator of the universe, truth in His mind, through this process, ultimately lands in our mind. And that's why this book is so valuable. We do not have, as Colossians tells us, the mind of Christ apart from this book. And so if you're trying to live life apart from the Bible, you're, you're going to fail every time. There's no hope. The Creator gave us this instruction manual as well, and we've got to apply it to our lives, and that's the ultimate goal. The reason God gave it to us is to change our lives, to make a difference in this world. So if you look at Christians who aren't acting like Christians, they're living in sin, backslidden, walking in the flesh, not after the Spirit, chances are they're not in the Word of God. They're not feeding the Spirit through the Word of God. They're not getting the truth that God has revealed through His Word into their minds. And so we mentioned the 66 books of the Bible. I probably don't need to tell this audience, but what are those 66 books? Well, it starts with the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then we've got the historical books, historical narratives in the Old Testament, the wisdom and poetic books like Job, Psalms, and Proverbs, the major prophets, and the minor prophets, and that rounds out the 39 books of the Old Testament. In the first century, during the Greco-Roman world, God began once again to reveal himself through the written word, starting with the Gospels, Matthew being first, both first canonically and first chronologically, even though a lot of modern scholars try to suggest Mark came first. That's not the case. Uh... And we've got the the only historical book, the only truly historical book, in the same way that the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, are historical, but they're taken as a unit to tell a story theologically. The Gospels are historical, but they present uh, selected events from the life and ministry of Christ put together in a particular order to make a point to their audience. But uh, acts like Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and Samuel, Samuel, 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are all, is, is completely historical, just historical narrative. You got Paul's letters and, and the general letters, uh, Hebrews, James, and the like, and then one prophetic book, the book of Revelation. And so the Bible tells a story. Starts with creation, it ends with recreation and the new heavens and the new earth, and along the way it gives us everything we need for life and godliness. So the first reason that God's Word changes lives is that it is inspired. It's inspired. It has a unique nature unlike any other book. So 2 Timothy 3.16 is a key verse. We'll mention it a few times this morning. But Paul says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's the way the New King James translates what you see in red there. One word in Greek, Theonoustos, Theonoustos, uh, and it's the only time this word ever appears in the New Testament or any other extra biblical Greek literature. It is a uh, neologism. It's, it's a new word that Paul created. And Paul is quite often uses uh, neologism. He's known for that. Writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, nothing wrong with that. He wants to communicate a truth there's no real word in his language to do that, so the Spirit of God leads him to create a word. He, he often combines two words. In this case, he he combines the word theos, God, with neo or neo, uh, meaning to breathe. So the idea is God breathe. In fact, the NIV translates this word God breathe, whereas uh, the New King James translates it inspiration of God because it's a new word, the only time it's ever used. We're kind of left to figure out the best English translation. Uh, God breathed is a pretty formal wooden translation, and and that's really um, what he's talking about. It's it's the process by which God inspired uh, the writers of Scripture. Peter adds a little more information about this process when he says that the writers of Scripture spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So this word move is the Greek word pharaoh. It means to guide, direct, to lead. It's used 64 times in the New Testament. For example, we see in Acts 12 when Peter and that angel were leaving prison and they're headed to John Mark's mother's house where the church, if you remember, was gathered to pray that Peter get released from prison. So it's kind of funny in the narrative there, Peter does get miraculously released from the prison. And it says that They, that's the angel and Peter, when they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city. It carries them all the way to uh, the city. And uh, he gets to the door of the house, knocks on the door. Rhoda, remember, comes and answers the door. She's stunned to see that it's Peter. She goes back to the prayer meeting in the living room. and He says, hey, guys, good news. God's answered our prayer. Peter's here. And they go, shut up, Rhoda. We're praying for Peter to be released. Leave us alone. <laughs> you know, they didn't, they didn't catch the significance of the moment. A teachable point there. How often do we pray for something and forget to, to look for God uh, to answer it? Another way place this word Pharaoh uh, carried along is used. It was was uh, when Paul was on the sea and the wind struck the sail and drove the boat. The boat was driven. It was carried along. So you go back to 2 Peter. The idea here is these men were carried along. Uh, as they wrote scripture and recorded their uh, prophecies. They were led. Where, they were, where were they led to? Where were they carried along to? Right where God wanted them to. As the quill hit the sheepspin, the words we have in our Bible today are the ones that God wanted to be there. That's this doctrine of inspiration. Hebrews says the word of God is living and powerful. The old King James says "Quick." And powerful, quickened meaning alive, um, and powerful, living there is the word energes. It's where we get the English word energy. It's, it's powerful, right? Uh, it's energetic. It's alive. That's why when we read the Bible, it's doing something to us. Back to Second Timothy three, we talked about inspiration of God being that God breathed, but the word Scripture is also very important because some people will say, "Well, yeah, these men were." Inspired in their thoughts and ideas, but that doesn't mean what they wrote was without error. And we use the word inspiration that way in in English. Sometimes, like, uh, you know, as an author, I might be thinking about a book or a portion or chapter of my book, and some ideas will come to mind, and I'll jot them down and sketch out a certain uh, thought process, an argument that I'm wanting to make. You might say I was inspired in that moment. Those thoughts just came to me. But that's nothing like the doctrine of inspiration of, of the Scripture because it's not talking about the ideas or concepts. The word Scripture is the word graphe, which means written words. It's where we get our English word graffiti. You can't have graffiti without writing. You know, No one looks at a blank wall on an underpass and says, well, I know what, what ideas and concepts that graffiti is trying to communicate, and you go, what graffiti? There's nothing there; it's just blank. No, no, but but there were some ideas there. No, no, you got to have the words before you can have the graffiti. You got to have the spray paint. You got to have whatever it is. Graf- graffiti or graffi is writings, and so it's the very writings when the quill hit the sheepskin that the Holy Spirit carried these men. Along to write scripture. So, the first reason God's Word changes lives is because of its nature. It is inspired, it's God breathed. Secondly, it's inerrant. Because the Bible is God breathed, it is necessarily of consequence errorless, without error. Uh, If God's the one carrying these writers along to record it, it can't have errors because God has uh, no errors. God is perfect. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. Uh, it is an amazing psalm. It contains a reference to the Bible in almost every one of the 176 verses, all but three, in fact. And throughout these 176 verses, 173 of which actually mention the Bible, he, the, the writer, the psalmist, an anonymous psalmist, uses 10 different Hebrew words to refer to the written word of God. The law, the judgment, testimony, commandments, precepts, statutes, etc. And we learn a lot about the inerrant uh, aspect of God's Word. For example, verse 160, The entirety of Your Word is truth. Or, Your Word is very pure. Verse 140. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that Your judgments are right. Or verse 89, Forever, O Lord, Your Word is settled in heaven. All Your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. Verse 128, Proverbs puts it this way, every word of God is pure. Every word of God is pure. So there are two living revelations of the word of God. As we read scripture, we find out there's the living incarnate word, Jesus Christ, our Savior. But there's also the living written word. And it's really interesting when you compare the two because there's a lot of overlap here in terms of what we mean by the living incarnate word and the living written word, the Bible. So let's look at the living incarnate word first. You've got Jesus Christ who had human parents, Mary, with the Holy Spirit overshadowing. That's the virgin birth. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and the seed of the woman. The seed there in Hebrew is the word zerach. It, it always refers to the male seed. It can only refer to the male seed because the male is the only one that has the seed. Not to get too biological here, but that's the fact. Never, ever is it used in the Hebrew Scriptures of a woman's seed, and yet that's what's described here, that one day the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, will defeat Satan. Well, what is it talking about? Well, it's talking about the uh, you know, Holy Spirit's conception resulting in Jesus Christ, a sinless Savior. Had Mary conceived through normal human means, He would have been born in sin like every other human being. Romans 5, 12 says, Wherefore, by one man, death entered the world, and death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Sin is passed down in the blood. The human blood is tainted. We're all sinners. Ephesians 2, 1 says, We're born dead in our trespasses and sin. David, King David said, From the moment of conception, I'm a sinner, because we're human beings. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. That's what they used to teach kids in school before the Rockefellers took it over, right? So we're all sinners, right? So Jesus had human parents, Mary, but as the angel told both Joseph and Mary, she's conceived by the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ. So he's a Savior without sin. Now you look at the living written word, you see something very similar. You've got human authors as we've talked about, capital A, little a, but you've got the Holy Spirit carrying them along and the result is Scripture without error. The commonality here is the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Because God is perfect and God cannot make mistakes, the living incarnate Word is sinless, Jesus Christ, and the living written Word is errorless. And if the Bible contains errors, as so many suggest today, then that's tantamount to saying we have a sinful Savior. It's the same Holy Spirit that gave us both. So God's Word changes lives because it is inerrant. It's trustworthy scientifically and in every other way, the Bible is perfect because it's the word of God. And because it's inerrant, that means it's indestructible. The word of God, by definition, cannot uh, fall apart or fail to accomplish what it says it will do. We talked about this last time from Isaiah. The word will not return void. Going back to Psalm 119, you see things like your righteous judgments endures forever. Uh Concerning your testimonies, you have founded them forever. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled, <clears throat> settled in heaven. Or verse 144, the righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. <clears throat> you come to the New Testament, Jesus in his first major sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees, and he, he attests to the indestructibility of God's word. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Remember, in Jesus' day, they just had what he called the law and the prophets, which was a summary statement of the Old Testament. The law, prophets, in essence, Genesis to Malachi is what he was saying. And so he's saying not one jot or one tittle will by any means pass from the Bible. Now, what is a jot and what is a tittle? We've talked about this before, but it's been a couple of years. But it's really fascinating how every word is so critical in scripture. scripture. The NIV translates this not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen. And that's more of a paraphrastic explanatory gloss because the Greek words are jot and tittle. But that's ap- absolutely right. That's what a jot and a tittle are. A jot is the smallest letter and a tittle is the slightest stroke of a pen. Let me illustrate with a couple of Hebrew words. So here, let's look at a jot. This is the word Yahweh. Remember in Hebrew, we read from right to left and write from right to left. So the first letter of the word Yahweh is a yod, which is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Jesus says not one yod, not, not the smallest letter, will ever disappear till it's all fulfilled because it's indestructible. And then for a tittle, let's look at the word love. This is the word ahav. And that final letter there is a bait, a Hebrew bait. And notice that little part sticking off the end, that tiny little stroke of a pen. That's critical. If that weren't there, this would not be that letter. It would be a kof. But because it's got that stroke of a pen, that tittle sticking off down there in the bottom right of the letter, it's a different word. So let me illustrate the importance of, of a small stroke of a pen, and how profound it is that Jesus said not the least stroke of a pen will disappear from this book till all is accomplished by, by using our English language. So if I put this a letter on the, uh, the screen, you might say, well, that's a one. But if I say, no, it's a letter, you say, oh, it's, it's an I, right? But if with one stroke of a pen, now it's pretty unambiguous. We're looking at a T, right? One stroke of a pen changed everything. I can make another stroke of a pen, now it's obvious, it's a capital I, totally different from a T, all by one stroke of a pen. So if we look at a word like the word F-A-T, fat, every stroke of a pen matters, because I could change the word entirely with just one stroke of a pen, now we've got the word pat. Or I could make another mark with my pen and we've got the word rat. You get the point, another stroke of a pen, suddenly we're looking at the word bat, Completely different words. Everything that the quill wrote down on the sheepskin, I'm using that metaphorically because it was papyrus in the New Testament and it was sheepskin in the Old Testament, but is critical. And Jesus said, not one jot or tittle will disappear. Peter puts it this way, the Word of God lives and abides forever. And then quoting from Isaiah 40, he says, All grass, all flesh is as grass, all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The indestructibility of God's word is where we get the biblical doctrine of preservation. Preservation. Think about it. If God supernaturally revealed himself to mankind through the pen of the human authors, revelation, inspiration, you get the original documents, doesn't it make sense that he would preserve the record of that revelation without error? He's not going to allow all these errors to creep in so that we have all of these thousands of manuscripts today and we don't know, well, some of them have scribal errors and they do, but we know that preserved within the extant manuscripts that we have in our possession today exists God's indestructible word of God. And this just speaks to the Supernatural nature of the Bible. First of all, the continuity of the Bible speaks to its incredible nature. You know, you've got again fifteen hundred years worth of writing across continents and languages and generations, and yet the continuity of the Bible is stunning. It can only be explained supernaturally. Uh, And you compare that to other ancient writings from around the same time period as the Bible, like. Uh, greek philosophers tacitus first century a.d. same time as the new testament Uh, we build history in our history textbooks on these uh, you know documents from people like tacitus how many manuscript fragments of tacitus do you think we have in existence today two two or thucydides eight herodotus and euripides eight and nine I mean, these guys are famous. You read about them there. We, we assume that almost everything we know about ancient times comes from these guys. We have half a dozen or so manuscript fragments of their writings. When it comes to the New Testament, written around the same time, we have six to 7,000 manuscript fragments. It's unreal. The indestructible nature of God's Word. I think I've quoted this uh, little uh, poem uh, before, but it always... is is meaningful to me. I still remember the day I heard it. I was about 19 years old, attending a big conference. And it just stuck with me. I committed it to memory, and it comes back to me often at different times. And it came to me as I was thinking about the indestructible nature of God's Word. And it goes like this. I stood beside the blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the Vesper chime. And looking in upon the floor, I saw old hammers worn from beating years of time. So how many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all those hammers so? Oh, just one, said he. Tis the anvil that wears the hammers out, you know. And so I thought of the anvil of God's word. Though for centuries critics' blows have rained upon, the anvil still remains. And it's the hammers that are gone. People used to charge a dollar a head to talk about the mistakes of Moses or travel the country talking about how the Bible is full of errors. Well, guess what? They're all in the grave. God's Word is still here. It's indestructible. And because of that, it has a life-changing power like no other. And that brings us to number four, and it brings us back to the Thessalonians and Paul's letter to them. Uh, the life-changing power of God's Word is seen in its influence. It is influential. It changes lives because of its powerful influence. And and it's seen clearly in the lives of these new converts. Back to our text, he closes this verse with, It effectively works in you who believe. It was making a difference in their lives. It was influencing them. Again, the Bible talks about its own influence, how it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, Psalm 119, 105. Or verse 2, blessed are those who keep his testimonies. James also talks about blessing comes from hearing and doing the word of God. Uh, Or verse 9, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Struggling with sin? How much of the Bible have you hidden in your heart? Or verse 28, strengthen me according to your word. Are you discouraged? Depressed? How much time do you spend reading the Word of God? I love this one. Verse 100 of Psalm 119 says, I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. In other words, age and experience and the wisdom that come with age and experience are not always the best counselors. Now, the Bible tells us in the multitude of counselors there is safety. It tells us that there's wisdom that comes from experience. We learn all of that from Proverbs, like Proverbs 15:31. the ear that hears the rebukes of life will abide among the wise. You know, you learn a thing or two as you go through life. But ultimately, the buck doesn't stop with our experience because there are exceptions. Um, and he says, I, because of your precepts, because of your word, I'm actually smarter than the, the oldest person around who's got a lot more experience. And that's the reason you can find young people who are mature believers and have a lot of spiritual wisdom. But you can also find older adults who have not been in the word, not been well-trained. And even though they've got a lot of worldly wisdom, they're not that spiritually mature. Through your precepts, I get understanding, the Bible tells us. Hebrews 4.12 reminds us that the Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Very interesting. What, what, what is this saying? What does it mean when it says the Word of God? we already talked about how it's living and powerful. What does it mean when it says it can discern our thoughts and intents? Well, he describes it here with a metaphor of a sharp sword, a two-edged sword. And he said, sometimes the, that within our heart and mind, that that which longs for the flesh, the fleshly desires, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that kind of thing, the worldliness, is hard to distinguish from the desires of the new man, that which longs for the spirit. In fact, sometimes they can be so mixed up within our heart and mind that it's hard to tell them apart, like, like ligaments and bones is the idea. But the sharp knife of the word of God comes in and instantly makes it clear for us. When you're struggling with a decision, you know, is this from the Lord? Is this just my own desires? Is this an open door? Is it a closed door? All of the things that we go through life wondering about sometimes. It's the word of God that helps sort that out. It's the word of God that gives us that direction. It really is a lamp to our feet and a light to our uh, path. So. We go back to 2 Timothy 3, we've already talked about the word scripture, this graphe, the writings, and how it's God-breathed, given by inspiration. But you notice he says it's profitable. This is that influential part that we're talking about. Profitable. How is God's word profitable? He tells us there are four ways that it's profitable. First of all, it's profitable for doctrine. What is doctrine? Doctrine is what to believe, Right? Periodically I'll I'll get calls because my number is listed on the Plum Creek Chapel website and people are looking at our church and They're kind of wondering about our doctrine. I love getting calls like that Hey, I I saw your church or heard you speak on some deal. You mentioned Plum Creek Chapel in Sedalia, Colorado I'm just curious what your doctrine is. Of course our doctrine statements on our website But I understand people would rather call sometimes and talk What's your doctrine? I love it. So I, I begin to explain to them look We are unapologetically dispensational. We believe in the literal, grammatical, historical understanding of scripture. That leads us to understand that salvation is a free gift of grace paid for by the blood of Christ and received only by faith alone in Christ alone. Leads us to understand that God has a distinct program for Israel and the church. Right now we're living in the church age, but he's not through with Israel. Someday Israel's gonna come back to center stage. The church is gonna be raptured before the 70th week of Daniel. I just begin to explain all of biblical doctrine that is important. Uh, to our our church and uh, you know sometimes by the time I finish talking all I hear is a dial tone (laughs) that's okay often I hear well great that's what I wanted to hear yes we're looking for a church like that but either way doctrine matters and it matters because it tells us what we're supposed to believe but he doesn't stop there he says it's also profitable scripture God's word is profitable for reproof reproof is what not to believe so we need to call out some errors we need to tell people uh, what not to believe. Someone came up to me after the early service and asked me about a particular uh, Bible teacher who's not with us anymore. They died. This person died last year, but I knew him, worked with him for nine and a half years, uh, and I was able to caution them, say, you know what, great guy, I love the Lord, but he's got some doctrinal aberrations that I would be careful about. What not to believe, right? Uh, and it goes on to say it, it's profitable for correction. Well, What is correction? Correction is what not to do. Behavior that you should avoid. And then he says it's also profitable for instruction in righteousness, right behavior, righteous behavior. So God's Word tells us what to do. Now look at those things on the screen. I mean, that's pretty uh, all-encompassing, isn't it? I mean, that's comprehensive. You need to know what to believe, what not to believe, how to behave, and how not to behave. If you got those four things down, you're going to do well in life. Then the task becomes, as we said, applying it to our lives. Just because we know what to believe doesn't mean we don't hang on to some of those presuppositions that we've had. Just because we know what to do doesn't mean we keep going back and doing those bad habits and bad behaviors. But at least we have the template. At least we have the roadmap. And God's Word is profitable because it tells us what to believe, what not to believe, how to behave, and how not to behave. So it's Changing lives because it is influential. So there you go. Four reasons God's Word changes lives. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's indestructible. And it's influential. So the takeaway is this. uh, Set your mind on the Word of God. I hope that reviewing this and seeing the impact that it had on the lives of the early believers in Thessalonica really has just re-energize us to get back into the Word of God, to fall in love with it again. Stand firm on the Word of God at a time when the Word of God is completely under attack, mocked, ridiculed. Uh, you know, we got banned again from YouTube. I knew that was going to happen. I don't know why. I wasted my time trying to re, re, you know, introduce myself to our YouTube audience. But I want to get the gospel out, and so we thought, well, we'll give it a shot. Took three weeks, and boom! Now I'm in the penalty box for two more weeks and and if I get one more strike, they're taking the whole channel down. So we're gonna have to go away from YouTube again. Why? Because they don't like the truth. They don't like the truth. They're gonna ban anything that's the truth, but we're gonna stand firm. I refuse, like, I know some of my colleagues and I respect them and everybody's got a different approach, but I just refuse to use code language, you know, when I'm speaking and to think, well, I can't say that because YouTube won't let me. I I just wanna speak from the heart. I'm not trying to poke the bear. But I know myself, and I know what I'm speaking, I'm going to say things that, are, that YouTube doesn't like. And I, this is a free country. I want to be able to speak freely. So I can do that on just every other channel, Rumble, podcast, everything else, but not, not, uh, not YouTube. So if you're listening to this and you were happy to see us back on YouTube, well, we're off again. Sorry. <laughs> um, but we're on Rumble. Find everything. Go, go to notbyworks.org. Everything we do, videos and podcasts are at notbyworks.org. But the bottom line is stay in the, the Word stay in the Word. Our walk with the Lord is directly proportional to how much time we spend in His Word. All through high school and college, I had a a Bible that was kind of my go-to Bible. This was before technology, so it was print. Now, the only time I use my print Bible is when I'm in the pulpit, just so I can hold it up. But all my study is done through technology, uh, which is fine. It's just a means. There's nothing in and of itself sacred about this cow leather and this, you know, part of a tree, this little paper, right? But in high school and college, I had this Bible, and it had taped to the front of it a poem that someone had given me from 1925. It was actually a hymn originally, but I never knew the tune. Uh, But it really is a good way to kind of end our message here this morning. It says, Though the cover is worn and the pages are torn, and though places bear traces of tears, yet more precious than gold is this book worn and old that can shatter and scatter my fears. When I prayerfully look in this precious old book, many pleasures and treasures I see, many tokens of love from the Father above, who is nearest and dearest to me. To this book I will cling, of its worth I will sing, though great losses and crosses be mine, and we all have our crosses to bear, do we not? For I cannot despair, though surrounded by care, while possessing this blessing divine. This old book is my guide, tis a friend by my side. It will lighten and brighten my way, and each promise I find soothes and gladdens my mind as I read it and heed it today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder that we see in the life of these early believers who not only were born again by faith, but were on fire and excited about your word and embraced it and welcomed it enthusiastically. Lord, I pray that we would do that as a body of believers here at Plum Creek Chapel and all who are listening to this on the Internet. Raise up Christians who are passionate about the Word of God because of what a difference it makes and, and how it changes our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.